Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed episode 359 is recorded live August 6th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we've had some unseasonably mild weather the last week or so. Uh, Mac may pop in. He's having some technical problems, so we're going to get going. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have the normal diehards showing up in there. We had Derek and Eric and Karen. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article is a follow-up from the Golden Ray. If you remember, the Golden Ray was that shipwreck that had sunk out there. That didn't sound like it was Georgia, did it? So what this is doing is uh, U.S. Senator David Perdue, Republican from Georgia, issued a letter, letter, a letter, a letter Tuesday, objecting to Unified's command's decision to suspend for at least two months the salvaging of the shipwreck that's on Saint Simmons Sound. Purdue addressed a letter to the U.S. Coast Guard Rear Admiral Eric Jones, commander of the Seventh District, which is based in Miami, citing COVID nineteen concerns and desire to let peak peak hurricane season blow over. Unified Command announced on Friday that it would delay the dismantling and removal of the 656-foot shipwreck until the beginning of October. Peak hurricane season usually begins in late August and lasts through September. Purdue has a residence at Sea Island, said he believes the delay will only increase exposure to the hurricanes while placing the vital marine estuary at greater risk. Right to express my disappointment with the recent decision to delay removal of the operations of the MV Golden Ray for two months until October 1st, Purdue wrote. With your most recent decision, Georgians now face a sobering fact that at best a wreckage will likely remain in St. Simmons Sound until late 2020. At worst, a major storm will upend all efforts and create an environmental catastrophe. Neither option is acceptable, yet it is where we find ourselves because of decisions that have been made. Months of preparation have been leading to the Hercule. Her- Herculean endeavor to slice the 25,000-ton shipwreck into eight pieces, an undertaking that is expected to begin right about now. Construction was completed earlier this summer on a 5,000-foot perimeter environmental protection barrier surrounding the Golden Ray, designed to contain large debris and leaking oil when the cutting begins. The behemoth dual-hulled crane barge that will do the cutting and hoisting the ship's pieces has been docked in Florida since July 3rd, an internal outbreak of COVID-19 this summer has hampered progress, infecting 10 workers and requiring to quarantine of 50 others, according to Unified Command. Strapped with the resulting delay in the middle of hurricane season, which began June 1st, Unified Command determined it was best to place the crucial demolition phase on, of the project on hold. Initial plans called for completing the bulk of the ship's demolition and removal before hurricane season. That timeline was later readjusted to begin before peak hurricane season. Purdue said he understands Unified's command reasoning and desire to protect the project workers, but he took the command to task for its timing on the decision. 
I also realize that COVID-19 pandemic has brought around unforeseen challenges to both worker safety and supplying necessary materials to complete the removal process. To be clear, I completely agree that safety of the crew members working on removal operations must come first and support Coast Guard's decisions to quarantine workers on floating barge in light of recent outbreaks. However, given the known risks associated with COVID-19, in addition to importance of finishing the work before hurricane season, I'm perplexed as to why it took until late July to formulate this plan. The Golden Ray capsized and its port size September 8th, 2019. While heading out to sea, the cargo of 4,200 vehicles. Unified Command includes Coast Guard, Georgia Department of Natural Resources, the Gallagher Marine Systems is responsible for ensuring the ship's removal process conforms to environmental protection standards established by the Federal Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Texas-based TNT salvages contractor conducting ship's removal. Purdue asked Commander Jones explain what transparent transpired recent weeks prompt the decision. Purdue further requested to see plans should a hurricane strike the area. That being said, I'd like an answer about what changed since July 9th to delay the commencement of the removal of the MV Golden Ray, as well as your detailed contingency plan to address a potential major hurricane strike on the Georgia coast. Unified Command officials deferred question the Coast Guard 7th District. A 7th District spokesman in Miami did not respond Thursday. Susan Inman, Coast Keeper for the at, what's that? Ultima Riverkeeper, said the Environmental Protection Group believes Purdue's letter raises valid concerns. We absolutely agree with Senator Purdue's statement, and we share all his concerns. Most importantly, delay will further postpone the decision to complete a natural resource damage assessment so stakeholders know to what extent to which uh, Hyundai should be held accountable. And unfortunately, with projects this big, this is not that uncommon. Uh, when you got a unified command, it means you got a lot of people, all who have a stake in it, and uh, it's I'm hoping this is not the case, but being involved with many projects, it kind of feels like progress by committee, which always takes three times longer than what you hope it would. Not saying this is easy, not saying they've made the wrong decision, but, you know, like the uh, congressman said, what changed? And a lot of times, when you, if you watch any of these shows where there's heavy project management, the leads or the evidence to something being off the schedule has been there all along. It's not until a critical date is missed that people reevaluate and then decide to communicate what the actual reasonable date is. So are the materials not there? Uh, Do they not have the staffing? Did they lose staffing because of COVID-19? But it seems like they're being a little tight left. And this is not your normal 3D printer. Uh, a researcher has been using coral carbonate uh, in 3D printing with calcium carbonate to create a sustainable underwater house for coral polyps and marine life to grow. Designed or developed by U.S. Design Workshops, the project is intended to facilitate restoration of coral reefs. The 3D printed coral carbonate objects have cylindrical bodies with porous rocky surfaces these are modeled on form of natural coral skeletons, which are also made of calcium carbonate and act as a foundation for all coral reef structures. Like coral skeletons, these units encourage the growth of reefs because of the nooks and crannies and surface act as homes for coral polyps and marine life to flourish. With the rising ocean temperatures and the increase in acidification, many aquatic organisms using 
calcification to create their homes are rapidly being destroyed, explained Alex Schofield, the architect and design technologist who heads up oceans and objects in ideograms, not idea, ideograms. The goal of the coral carbonate is to print the scaffolding for a house that biologically organisms will inhabit and grow their own new homes and communities. He told uh, the this publication, which is Dezen, D-E-Z-E-E-N, once in bed, marine life can take advantage of substrate most similar to their native home. Uh, the coral carbonate was initiated three years ago by Schofield after he learned that coral reefs around the world rapidly experience unprecedented destruction due to human activity and climate change. Looking to rapidly help create more reefs, he discovered the solution currently available are often made from unsustainable man-made materials rather than those native to the marine ecosystem. The material invention application of calcium carbonate using this method of fabrication is very novel, leading us to material formula and processes now patent pending. Calcium carbonate is abundant throughout the world, typically sourced from limestone, marble, and chalk. The studio hopes that the future may be also may also be possible to acquire the materials through carbon sequestration, removal of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, similar to how coral polyps capture carbon from ocean water and convert to calcium carbonate to make their skeletons. Alternative materials for underwater ecosystems and coastline fabrication, such as concrete used for reef balls, pterapod structures, and even coral frags, often leach undesirable byproducts and contribute to large carbon footprint in the production process, added Schofield. Waste byproducts from cities such as New York City subway cars have been used as substrate for artificial reef restoration. Why do we use our own trash to buy products of human life to rebuild the water? So, and he goes on. I, he's got some valid points, but this seems very heavy, a marketing campaign. Uh, and I don't hold it against anybody to patent their designs, but it seems like the patenting is going to limit the accessibility of this to where it needs uh, so it'd be interesting if he said, you know, how this is going to be there. Is this something that he, you know, you have to buy the equipment and license it from him to restore a reef? Uh, it seems it's going to be a challenge uh, with the needs that's out there to find the funding. The Museum of Underwater Art in the Great Barrier Reef welcomes its first visitor. British sculptor Jason Taylor merged art and environmental activism in his newest art piece of the Great Barrier Reef. Sitting 59 feet underwater on the ocean floor at the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park's John Brewer Reef, the 64-ton art piece has a 40-foot skeletal structure with 20 statues depicting students working with coral as well as three sculptures of local flora like eucalyptus and umbrella palm. When we talk about reefs, we're very much talking about what we're leaving for younger generations, Taylor, who was also a scuba diving instructor, told CNBC. I also want to encourage more youth and the marine scientists into exploring and understanding the underwater world. Built using corrosion-resistant stainless steel and pH-neutral cement compounds, the art also has a dual environmental role as the material will help incite natural coral growth. The beam sections provide minimal resistance to wave energy while providing an ideal surface for filter-feeding organisms and schooling fish to congregate, the artist told The Guardian adding that he hopes the space will also be a refuge for animals like sea urchins and octopuses. 
Completed last December, the exhibit was set to open to snorkels and divers in April before the coronavirus pandemic hit. Instead, after underwater ribbon-cutting ceremony, the first guest took a dive on August 2nd by booking a spot with one of the operators running boat tours of the site two hours off the coast of Townsville, which is about 50 miles. When tourists scuba dive the site, it will involve evolve from being water sports activity, both marine science and cultural experience. Coral Greenhouse is just one of the Museum of Underwater Arts four exhibits. Ocean Siren, the only one that is visible above the water from land in Townsville, is a 16-foot depiction of a 12-year-old Takata Johnson, a member of the local lands while while guru while guru Kuba people, which I'm sure that's not correct. Installed in December, the structure's LED lights change colors based on the water temperature of the Davis Wreath, symbolizing the impact of climate change on ocean temperatures. Blue indicating safe, while red is red dark. Dark red is critical warning. Two other sections of the museum are scheduled for completion in 2021. Palm Island is in June and Magnetic Island in December. Out of Korea, treasure of the Sinan Shipwreck Unveiled Online, an online exhibition of artifacts from the Sinan Shipwreck opened Tuesday, showing the vessels and coins, among other items, were dug up from the ocean floor during an eight-year underwater salvage operation. According to National Research Institute, Maritime Cultural Heritage, which organized the online expedition, the ship, which is estimated to weigh more than 200 tons, sunk while carrying priceless cargo in 1323. The ship left port in Ningbo in China, was headed to Hakata in Japan. In August 1975, a fisherman in Sion accidentally caught six ceramic vessels, including Celadons that date back to the 14th century Yang Dynasty China and its fishing net, leading to a search for a sunken shipwreck. A year later, an underwater salvage operation was launched, and it continued until 1984. Around 27,000 pieces of artifacts and more than 28 tons of Chinese coins were found at the time. 57 additional artifacts, which were illegally excavated and kept hidden by a man in uh, Dejan for 36 years, were found and returned to the Cultural Heritage Administration last year. Uh, the National Research Institute of Maritime Cultural Heritage researcher Park Yeri told the Korean Herald, currently there are no further underwater searches related to the Sinan shipwreck are being conducted by the National Research Institute of Marine Cultural Heritage, she added. Of the items that have been found, we have selected about 80 representative relics for the online exhibition. The organizers also said that cartoon and documentary film about the shipwreck are also provided in the web gallery. The National Research Institute of Marine Cultural Heritage said the decision to open the online expedition that made it request the public artifacts from the Shipwreck have also been exhibited in National Museum in Korea and the Gyeongju National Museum. Stories of the Sinan shipwreck and the relics are carried can be on the portal at the Giant Dom's Gallery webpage. So a little bit different shipwreck than what we're used to seeing. I'm imagining that this is a reconstruction that they have here in the photo, but it it's, looks like a, a large warehouse. They have this uh model that's created and underneath they have displays where you can walk around and take a look at them some of the items uh, i don't know what the online version has 
Yeah, Eric's saying it looks like most is replicated, and I agree. I, I think so. First intact evidence of Inca's underwater ritual offerings have been found in the Lake of the Andes. A small stone box contained a bracelet and a carved llama and may have once held human blood. Archaeologists have described an intact offering made by the Inca, Pe- Inca people deposited in Lake Titicaca in the Andes about 500 years ago. Discovery hints at the evidence of other important Incan rituals, such as human sacrifices, may also lurk underwater. The Spanish recorded the Incan practice of placing offerings in water in the 16th century, and this offering, a stone box, is the first such object to be found discovered in one piece. It holds a small golden bracelet and a shell carved in uh, to resemble an alpaca or llama. The box may have also contained human blood, according to a new study. Lake Titicaca extends to what is now Bolivia and Peru. It is one of South America's largest lakes and is known for importance to the Incas. Inca original myths named the lake as the birthplace of the sun, and a ceremonial complex of Incan shrines and temples once stood the lakes Asala de Sol, or Island of the Sun. In 1977, amateur divers from Japan found several stone boxes underwater on the Koa Reef near the island's temple complex. Their age and location suggest that objects had been placed in the lake by the Incas for ritual purposes. More boxes were recovered from the reef during dives in 1988 and 1992, but nearly all the boxes were broken or had been looted. <coughs> Beginning in 2012, an international team of archaeologists extended the search for submerged artifacts in Lake Titicaca, and in 2014, experts discovered the undamaged box at the bottom of a reef near the island in the southeastern part of the lake. The rectangular box is sculpted from volcanic rock called andesite and measured 1.2 feet or 0.4 meters long, 0.9 feet or 0.3 meters wide. It was roughly sealed with a circular stone plug, but was not watertight. Perforations and grooves in the short sides of the box likely held ropes that were used to lower it into the water, a pact just described in Spanish records according to the study. Once recovered, the box wasn't opened immediately. We opened the stone box in our field laboratory in the presence of various municipal and local indigenous community authorities, researchers said. Inside, they identified a rolled sheet of gold measuring 0.98 inches or 25 millimeters long that looked like a miniature version of a bracelet commonly worn by Incan noblemen. Next to the bracelet was an alpaca-like animal figurine carved from a mollusk shell measuring 1.1 inches or 28 millimeters long. Such carved figures are found inside similar golden bracelets at other Incan ritual sites. Together, these symbols of animals and wealth may represent an offering of thanks for prosperity and good fortune, the scientists wrote. And then they go on a little bit farther and talk about all the exciting stuff, such as human sacrifices, but uh, I don't think they've got enough information yet, and that's most likely included because it's nice clickbait. And in Michigan... We're starting to see some activities at least start up. Like Michigan boat tours are back. They are having limited capacity in tour times. This is reported in the Alpena News. Lady Michigan glass bottom boat tours restarted the past week, and the boat will be going out at 10 a.m. daily as weather permits. Tickets are about $30 per adult. Available online in advance at thunderbayfriends.org or prior to each tour behind the NOAA building at the boarding dock on Thunder Bay River. 
Tickets for 6 to 12 are $10 each. The tour takes 40 people out into Thunder Bay to view some shipwrecks. Prior to the pandemic, the boat's capacity was 80 people, but now that it's been halved and the masks are required for all riders and staff on the boat. According to Andrew Augustin, Visitors Experience Manager for the Lady in Michigan, the boat would have normally been operated since April, but because of engine repairs, Coast Guard inspections, and pandemic, 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 things have not been able to reopen until now. Normally, tours would be running three times a day, 10 a.m., 1 p.m., 4 p.m., but they noted tours will only be offered at 10 a.m. this week. Expect more tours to be added soon and said to check the website for updates. He had right now tours are scheduled to run at least through Labor Day. On Saturday, about 20 mass riders accompanied the crew for the boat tour, which ran on Thunder Bay Island to view, to view Mono Handset Shipwreck. Built as a double-decked bulk freighter, Ira H. Owen, the ship was rechristened Mano Hansett in 1882. States the description in the uh, NOAA website. Ten years later, it was rebuilt as a single-deck lumber carrier. November 23, 1907, the ship buried to the water's edge at Thunder Bay Island. Most of the crew lost their personal belongings, and some suffered minor burns, but there was no loss of life because the ship was near the island's life-saving station. Today, the wreck lies in three sections. Stern portion has hull features, propeller, shaft all in place, and the boilers nearby. They said that the boat now features two large flat panel monitors below the deck adjacent to the two glass bottom viewing areas. On the screens, riders can view in real time the GPS location of the wreck, the route of the boat, as well as a vessel approaching or nearby. Also, the colorful screens in the boat speed, latitude, longitude, along with other indicators such as depth in the water below. For the further information, and if you click on our show note links, you can see it. And they're not sponsoring us. <laughs> they could, but they're not. Hopefully they make it. We like to see uh, these sort of programs do well because this is this is kind of like the on-ramp to getting people interested in scuba diving because uh, you're only going to be able to get so close to that glass-bottom boat. You're going to need to uh, get some gear and get underwater to really see stuff up close. And then I almost had this next one in. Potentially cool scuba gear. This is uh, from James Cameron's new movie, Avatar 2. Producers are showing what the underwater transporter will look like, and I have to say I want one. Uh, To describe the photo to you, which you're just going to have to go and take a look yourself, but imagine a six-legged spider-type creature. Uh, (coughs) In the image, it's supported by four of the legs, and the other two have manipulators on them. And that's on shore, it's on dry land. And then it, I understand that it's going to be able to walk into the water and then it, everything kind of tucks up and it uh, moves around like a submarine. So they call it the crab suit, a human-driven, multifunctional submersible. So, But we're going to have to wait a while to see it. I think that's uh, not going to be available till sometime next year. So that does it for Scuba in the News. I was hoping Mac would be able to get on because he and I both were able to get a dive in this weekend. Uh, we went and did a river dive in Niles. Uh, conditions were actually pretty good. Uh, the current was still moving pretty strong. He he said it was a little bit quicker than it had been. But visibility, I would say, was about 15 feet. We had a fairly sunny day, which uh, made things kind of nice. Uh, 
it had been the first time in a while I had been in, uh, well, probably about six, eight weeks. And it always seems like that first dive, uh, tends to be a little bit of a challenge. I, uh, on the great Lake, I was doing a dry suit and here I was in a wetsuit and it just seemed like it took me longer than I like to get everything kind of positioned. There are three of us and I have to apologize. I, I can't remember who the other, what the other diver's name was. Uh, maybe somebody in the chat room who saw the photos on Facebook can, can help me remember. Uh, but we were, you know, it seemed like the consensus was everybody wanted to go across the river. So, uh, I, I started to head across the river and I, like I said, everything, I it had been a year and a half since I had dove with a dive flag. Uh, most of my diving had been on the, on the big lake. So, you know, the boats, the dive flag and we go down. So, uh, I was, I was taking the, you know, after I got all my gear up and everything situated and, and finally got to moving, um, that dive flag seemed awful heavy. So I reeled it back in and in the process of heading out to the river, uh, I had loaded it up with a bunch of seaweed, uh, seaweed had wrapped, wrapped around the part of the dive flag that was in below in the water. So once I cleaned that off, uh, it cut down on the, the drag a little bit. So I was able to make it to the other side. Uh, you know, I was probably a little light. Uh, I had added an extra three or four pounds for being in a river, but I probably could have used another three or four just to counter it. Uh, so even though you can make it to the other side, you, you kind of like to have a little bit more negative buoyancy. So you're, you're pushing against the bottom. You, know, you get that butt up in the air, kind of side crawl to go across, and that makes it a lot easier. Uh, Deb. Uh, Deb Witkowski. So, yeah. Yeah, she she had this, the smallest tank and was in the, the longest, so that, that tells you something. Uh, uh, and then when I got to the other side, and it only happened in a second, I was, you know, grabbing some bottles, putting them in my catch bag, and that was just long enough for me to drop my line that was holding on the flag, and then the flag went away. So... I ended, so I decided that uh, since I didn't have a flag, I wasn't going to hang around in the river. Uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of like uh, one of those things where you lose the flag, you go over. Uh, and I figured the flag was way down the river. So I, I worked my way across to the other side, popped my head up, and the flag must have gotten caught on a, a tree branch right near where I was doing the bottle hunting. So then I went back across. I had enough air to make it back across. Uh, but I I picked a stronger part of the, the current, and when I got across, I was too far downstream from the flag to make it back up to, to grab it. And I was down at about the uh, less than a 1,000-pound range, so went back across. So there's a nice flag for somebody if they want to pick it up. And I say nice. It's not nice. <laughs> it's it's due to be replaced. Uh, this is just getting a little rough looking, uh, you know, more pale salmon color than the nice red and white like we like a dive flag to be but uh and thanks for karen i think it was karen posted the the photos in the chat room we did have some nice finds some embossed bottles i haven't cleaned mine out yet uh i did have a coke i don't think it was a christmas coke but it was a nice older style coke i had a uh, cream bottle in good shape with a small emboss i i oh the 
and I can't remember if it was a Coke bottle or one of the other bottles. I think it was a Coke. It did have a St. Joe, Michigan uh, bottling mark on. So any bottles like that in good condition, they got St. Joe on. Uh, Somebody's always interested in. Mac did find a golf ball, but uh, didn't get it. And when he was pulling his catch bag up out of the water, you could hear something clinking. And probably his best bottle find ended up breaking uh, as he lifted it up out of the river. So, oh, I also had a nice embossed inkwell. Uh, so not, not as many finds, you know, I, I wasted quite a bit of time just getting comfortable being back in the river again. So I understand there was a thank, a thankful Tuesday dive where quite a few divers were out and they were able to get in the water. Uh, I was planning on going out to, uh, max rec on Sunday. Uh, Jim Schultz and Karen and I were going to go make it out, but it was getting a little bit rough and you could see on the satellite that there are some storms coming out over the lake. So we skipped it. Uh, water temperature was probably in the, I mean, it's certainly wetsuit weather. I was completely comfortable. Uh, my seven mil, which is probably more like a three and a half to four at this point, considering how old and worn it is. Uh, and that was plenty. You could have probably dove without a hood, but I like just to have something I had, especially when we're going over there. Uh, we got strainers. There's some, there's some branches and trees that are there in the water on that other side. Um, and then I wore some seven millimeter gloves just as uh, protection as you're breaking the glass. A lot, uh, not breaking the glass, uh, picking up bottles, but there's a lot of broken glass in the bottom. A lot of clams, which I thought was a good sign. Uh, they say that, you know, clean, clean water, you'll have some clams in it. And clams have been kind of hit or miss you know, the last eight or nine years there in the river, but it, it was looking pretty good. So, you know, we can mark that up to the pandemic or something, but uh, it was actually water conditions were, were pretty clear. And then I understand that there's some people trying to do a dive. I think Mac's planning on a drift dive in the river for Saturday. And then uh, we'll have to keep an eye out and see what anybody else has got planned over the weekend. So perfect time. If you're not getting out there diving, uh, what are you waiting for? It's a, uh, perfect time in in michigan we're fortunate in that we can we can get out and enjoy it we don't have uh, that much of a lockdown so we can't get out it's a allowed exercise and activity so let's see i think what we're going to do is uh this will end up being another short episode so let's see i've got a couple jokes i could run through uh yeah so let's let's go ahead and do this one this one will be kind of a Oh, a quick one. A physicist, an engineer, and a mathematician are all locked in separate burning buildings. The physicist runs into a chalkboard, calculates exactly how much water you'll need to put out the fire, runs and finds out that amount and puts the, out the fire and survives. The engineer pulls out a calcu- calculator, calculates how much water he will need to put out the fire, runs and grabs 10 times that amount, puts out the, the fire and survives. The mathematician runs a chalkboard, calculates exactly how much water he will need, put out the fire, declares there is a solution, and then burns to death. So I don't know, is that a good one or not? I see a lot of typing coming on, probably a lot of swearing and deleting. Well, maybe we can just fit one more in. A guy goes to the psychiatrist. Doc, I keep having these alternating recurring dreams. First I'm a teepee, then I'm a wigwam, then I'm a teepee, then I'm a wigwam. It's driving you crazy. What's wrong with me? The doctor replies, it's very simple. You're just too tense.
<laughs> Your mom has a master's degree in that. <laughs> I don't know. Is that is it appropriate to say I'm sorry? <laughs> so I think I, I think we've done it. We've, we've done enough damage. So until next week, go out there and get wet and dive safe.